like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Dick's 1967 novel, Counterclock World. Um, and this book is about what would happen if the dead were rising from the grave. And what would be the social consequences of that? What would be the political, to some degree, consequences of that? But mostly he's interested in the theology of a world in which, because of the reversal of time, people are rising from the dead. Um, there's a lot of, so in this world, the Hobart phase is identified, and this means that the world is basically like time is an expanding and contracting uh, dimension, I guess. And at one point, time started going backwards. And the main thing it did is it raises people from the dead. Um, it does a few other things too, but those aren't nearly as important. Really, Dick is focused in on this one aspect of the Hobart phase, and that is the fact that it raises people from the dead. This novel is about a company that takes these people from the grave, helps them get back on their feet, takes a profit through doing that. Uh, but they find out that they have access to the body of, of the Anarch Peak. The Anarch was the head of an African-American kind of new religious movement who had died and the movement had lived on and he's quite famous and important. And so by getting hold of him, they think they can get the big payday. But by claiming the body and reviving him at the right moment, they got in trouble with the library. They got in trouble with Rome who wants him. They're in trouble with the Udite movement, this new religious movement that also wants to get a hold of, of the Anarch. So um, that's kind of where we are at the middle part of the novel. They're besieged with all these forces and they need to decide kind of how to get out of this and maybe hopefully get paid um, as, uh, as well. But that's less and less likely by the middle part of, of the story. So where we left off in chapter 10, the head of this Vitarium, this company that raises the, the dead, or they didn't actually do the, the raising, they just kind of ease these people back into, into life, dig them out of the ground, that kind of stuff. Uh, the head of this company has just slept with a woman named Ann Fisher, and he did this for a very weird reason. So due to this Hobart phase, people, some people are born naturally and they kind of live out their normal lives, although it seems their lifespan is affected in some way. But the main effect is on the people who get wakened up. They're, they're called the old-borns or sometimes the deaders. They have different names. Um, but they'll continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller until they eventually become babies, crawl into a womb, and then nine months later, they have to be basically uh, destroyed by an act of sex, and this can be with anyone. So she comes in and she talks to Sebastian, who is married, by the way, but his wife has just left him, or he got word that his wife was considering leaving him. And so this Ann Fisher is a beautiful young woman, talks him into having sex with him, and they go to a hotel and do that. He also tells them that tells her that they have the body of the Anarch. And this turns out to be a big mistake because Ann Fisher is actually the daughter of the head of the library. Now, why is the library important? Well, as I said in the previous episodes, the reason the library is so important in this novel is because they are responsible for destroying knowledge as this Hobart phase moves backwards. Someone has to collect all the books and destroy the knowledge at the right point, right? So if you wrote this book in... 1990, time goes ahead a little bit and then starts going back. When it hits that 1990 stage, or roughly, 
it's not exact exact science it seems but you have to destroy all of your copies of that work including the original manuscript and this can be actually a you know kind of a big deal for authors to to um, eradicate their work in fact a lot of the people that work at the library are called erads and they're responsible for collecting all these books and destroying them right now their interest in the anarch is that they want to make sure that the anarch doesn't start to retell his rewrite his books because those are already eradicated and they don't want to kind of disrupt the timeline by having these ideas reemerge, right? And there's actually a deeper political reason for it. On the surface, it's because that's our job as a library to eradicate this knowledge. But on another level, they're concerned about the impact of this new religious movement on fracturing the United States. The United States has been broken up into three parts, a Western part, an Eastern part, and the free Negro municipality. So what's really happened here is black nationalism, the black poor movement, and Yes, this kind of won out, right? And Dick wrote this novel in the context of the emerging Black Power movement, which comes, of course, after the successes of the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. Um, but, you know, this didn't really address the major needs of African Americans in the cities. So the Civil Rights Movement kind of turned to a more urban phase in the late 60s and, and into the 70s. And uh, Malcolm X, in fact, is directly referenced several times in the text. So it's definitely Philip Dick was thinking about, about this. So that's the library's interest in the Anarch. Who else is interested in the Anarch? Well, it seems the, the bishop in Rome, the Pope, has some interest, and he has a representative who's trying to... Uh, not, he doesn't want to pay for him. Uh, he's trying to argue that the Anarch is, is free to go his own way. He's not going to be bound to anyone. And then the Udite movement want him, but why? Some think that they just want to kill him because the new leader of the Udite movement wouldn't want to compete with this old spiritual leader. Um, others think that maybe they want him as an actual kind of revival, uh, a, a leader who can revive the, the church and help it expand. So that's, that's the situation at the end of, of chapter 10. So in chapter 11, uh, Sebastian Hermes, that's one guy, right? Sebastian Hermes and Anne Fisher go to see Anarch Peak. Fisher said she, when she heard that they have the Anarch Peak, she just ex explained her desire to go see him. So they go together. And when they get there, Peak is up and running. He is, he's been revived already, but he's kind of got acculturated to the situation. And he starts retelling his afterlife experiences. And in fact, he's telling it so much. And he's fearful that they're going to forget it because there's this concern that people forget their afterlife experience. Because no one seems to really remember it. Even Sebastian, who's a debtor, doesn't remember his afterlife experience. It comes to him in dreams and in little bits and pieces. And he sees commonalities between what the Anarch says and his own experience, suggesting there is a common afterlife experience. But no one's really ever written it down. And it always kind of fades away the way a dream does after a few minutes when you wake up. So they're really trying to have the Anarch say everything and are trying to copy it and write it down, really record his, his ideas. Um, so they arrive to find the staff trying to record the Anarch's thoughts. And then they need recording technology. And I think this is such a funny little... Bit, just from our own point of view, right? Because in Dick's time, you know, I think tape recorders were kind of bulky and they were heavy and maybe you wouldn't have one, right? Obviously, you know, in the future, if he could have predicted it, we all have recording technology like on our, in our pockets, right? We can all, you know, this wouldn't be a problem, but it becomes a plot, of, plot point here that they don't have a tape recorder. And so Fisher eventually agrees to go get the tape recorder. But while this is all still going on, Sebastian gets a call from Rome. And this call basically informs him that this Anne Fisher is actually Anne McGuire, right? That's her real name. So she's the daughter of Mavis McGuire. We already knew this as readers, but now Sebastian learns it. And now there's a real fear that she's, the, she's a threat to the Anarch. She can maybe 
kidnap the Anarch or take them, or she's there for some nefarious purposes. Now, Anne is going to try to argue at this point that she's not really, a, you know, she's she's there out of goodwill. She's just trying to do her job as a librarian. She she get she good co- good cops and bad cops them throughout these few chapters, but she still agrees to kind of go to do to get the tape recorder, which is the exact opposite of what the library's goal in all this is. So Sebastian eventually confronts Anne on on who she really is, on her identity on her lies, and on the kidnapping of his wife, because Lata, Sebastian's wife, was actually kidnapped by the library in an earlier chapter, and she's just saved. She was saved by a policeman. We'll come back to that that issue. Um, so she says she just wants to erad his knowledge. She doesn't even want to kill the Anarch. She just wants to make sure his knowledge is, is eradicated, and that's the only reason she's, she's interested in, in helping the library kidnap them. She still thinks that she can kind of manipulate Sebastian sexually, and this is kind of Anne Fisher's main deal. And there's a lot of women in Dick's fiction, of course, who have this power to just control men through their sexual power or prowess or their attractiveness. And this seems to be a real hang-up of Philip Dick's, and, and you have a character like this in almost every one of his novels. It's usually like an ex-wife who's really hot, and, and uh, the poor man can't get her out of, out of his head. Um, so there's this tension here, but it's not clear what cards Anne really holds. In fact, at one point, Sebastian slaps Anne, you know, trying to assert his dominance over her. While all this is still going on, they get a call from um, a man named Gantrix. He's of the Uditi, so he's uh, one of the people in this new religious movement. And they're interested in purchasing the Anarch. Now, why is it purchasing? Why can't we just give it to them? Well, these Viterians need to make money, right? They're, they're in it for the money. So usually they pull people out of the grave, help them transition. They do religious sacraments, give them advice. But then eventually the sales department has to find someone who wants this person and is willing to pay for them. You know, And if they, no one wants to pay for them, they're kind of put on the government dole in some way. Uh, but that's really where they make their profit. They find people who maybe have family, Maybe a business might be interested in them. We're going to read Ubik soon. And in Ubik, you have this idea of, of a company kind of run by the dead. Um, you can also read the story, What the Dead Men Say, which I've already reviewed in this, this podcast. It has the same kind of idea. And it's, it's not really addressed here, but you can imagine a company could kind of get its founder back or something. And they might be willing to pay for it. Now... Sebastian makes an offer for the Anarch to Gantrix, 40 billion postcreds. He doesn't specify which currency, and it seems the currency is of different values in different states. Um, but it seems to be a lot of money. It's almost like a joke amount of money. That's how I took it. But it seems in some currencies, these, these people can come up with that kind of money. Uh, now, a big theme in this chapter is the realization by Sebastian that he's a bit in over his head that there is a real threat of violence in, in the works here and that Sebastian's not really prepared for this violence. Uh, quote, and he's actually, he does the opposite. His job is to, to raise the dead, to create life in a way. And, and that whole idea of the, of the Vitarium's creating life is going to be revisited. Um, quote, but he was trained to bring people back to life, not to kill them. His whole orientation, everything he believed involving bestowing life, on everything possible without distinction. The Viterium never asked for a pedigree of the old drawn to be dug up, never inquired into whether they ought to live again. It's not that easy to kill a person, he thought. That's not what people do. There's got to be another answer. But hitting her hadn't affected her, except to get him placed on her permanent food list to be paid back. I don't think I can physically drive her away, he decided. Not if she intends to hang around. 
Words have no influence on her, nor menace to her physical safety. He wondered, where's there, where's the bomb here in this room? God, he thought, I have to do something. I can't lie here. I have to act, end quote. Now, that bomb thing is that Anne has said she has a bomb in the building, and she'll detonate it if, if she has to as a way to, to achieve the library's goals. Um, but the key point here is really this, this idea of like what is the proper role of man, right, in the and that is to kind of nurture and cultivate life. And he's doing this. And this is something really valuable to him. He, he's not a violent person. And I think, you know, when we actually look at human beings as, as killers, it seems only a few of us are actually able to do that, right? And, and many of us who are put in positions where we're forced to kill do so only with extreme psychological trauma. Now, I'm not going to have the exact numbers here, but I remember reading an account about these World War II soldiers, or maybe I saw it on a documentary or a film or something, but these World War II soldiers mostly wouldn't shoot the enemy. They would actually miss on purpose, even in a life or death combat situation. And so that actually led the military to change their training in the post-World War II era to kind of get this empathy out of, out of their heads. But, um, you know, it seems even for a soldier, it's often hard to actually do the, the act of killing. So, and that's, that's what Dick seems to believe here. And I really believe that he thinks the fundamental human act is, is, is empathy, it's love, it, it's really caring for one another. It's not, it's not violence, it's greed, those kinds of things. You know, we are searching for meaning in life. We're not necessarily searching for material goods. He has kind of contempt for those kinds of aspirations. Um, and this is just one small piece, of, I think, of the overall Phil Dickian philosophy of life. But it's, it's an important aspect of it. So chapter 12 just picks up right with the same scene. Anne is claiming to have hidden a bomb in the Vitarium and is, is willing to detonate it. And then they try to get the detonator from her, and they eventually do. But then she says, well, the library has a detonator, and you know, if there's trouble, they're willing to sacrifice me as well to achieve this. Um, so they're still kind of in this Mexican standoff in the Vitarium. And then Gantrix arrives to kind of finish the deal, and so he kind of walks right into this hostage crisis. Fortunately for him... Um, so Anne is still trying to good cop Sebastian, saying, you know, we don't want it to hurt the Anarch. We just need to do this job. We're the librarian. It's like our civic duty. It's our job. Um, we already know, though, that Mavis has a larger concern. She's angry at the Udite movement for what she thinks is actually destroying the fabric of, of America, destroying the country. So, um, you know, but still, she's trying to good cop them. Gantrix, meanwhile, it's finally revealed that the Udites don't want to kill the Anarch, which, you know, the reader was kind of led to believe at this point that, that the current head of the Udite movement would just want to kill the, the Anarch. But actually, Gantrix says the real interest here is, is truly spiritual, that they have a deep need to have this Anarch back in their life, and they think he can kind of lead forth a revival of the movement. He says, we revere the Anarch. He's our saint, the only one we got. We waited decades for this return. The Anarch will have the ultimate wisdom of the afterlife. That's the entire purpose of Robert's, Robert's pilgrim, pilgrimage. This is the holy journey for the purpose of sitting at the feet of the Anarch and hearing his good news. The news, the glorious news of the fusion in eternity of all souls. Nothing else matters but this news. Now, they seem to know this, and I don't know where they got the theology of the union of all souls, but their, their whole kind of religious practices involve picking drugs and kind of having this shared hallucinogenic experience. This is a common dick trope. You have it in the black box. You have it in Do Androids Dream Electric Sheep. It's there in Ubik, it's there in the Maze of Death. Some of these experiences are good, some are bad, but this idea that we all have a collective delusion. So all the way back to Eye in the Sky, you have these, uh, this trope 
being being reused. But we have strong suggestion here that the afterlife is a shared experience as well because the Anarchs seem to have similar memories of the afterlife as did Sebastian. Anna, um, Anne Fisher, they get the triggering mechanism from her at some point. In fact, actually, Carl Jr. comes to help. Carl Jr. is this um, robot who works for the, the Udi, Udite movement. They get the, the detonator from her, but she says they still can detonate it from the library. So it's not much of a, doesn't change that much. She starts to get nasty, though, and she starts to threaten Lada if she doesn't get the Anarch. She says, well, you know, if, they, if you kill us or we die or the Anarch dies or whatever, we don't get it. You know, Lada's going to be the one who suffers. Your wife will be the one to suffer. Now, she's not in the hands of the library at this moment, but she will be shortly. She's going to be re-kidnapped. So, um, meanwhile, the Uditi and Sebastian are trying to work out a deal, and they actually are willing to pay the 40 billion post-creds but not in, in their own currency, which is a, the free Negro municipality, kind of a, a, a free black state. They also, we also learn about another group here that, that might help, and they take play a major role in the last part of the novel, and that's the offspring. The offspring are like the special military force, the, Udi, the Uditi's paramilitary arm, or they're called the offspring, and they're like really badass people. They're well-armed, and they're capable of inflicting real damage on people. And they kind of say, well, if we do this deal, you know, the UDT are going to help you save your wife. They'll be, they'll be willing to do that. Now, at the end of this chapter 12, Rome calls, and they kind of want to in on the bargaining too, but they're not willing to pay. So it seems the library is just trying to steal it. The UDT are willing to, to pay and negotiate with the Viterium. But Rome is trying to make a moral argument that this idea of actually selling these debtors, these uh, old born, is anti-theological. Right? This is a very religious society, as you would expect in a society that's where people are literally um, rising from the dead. But uh, the agent from Rome calls and he says, um, where is it? I can't find it. Oh, this is the robot actually suggesting what he would... Uh, say, and this is actually what he does argue eventually. Uh, he says, Civil law regards an old-born individual as the chattel of the Viterium which revives it. This, however, is not in accord with theological considerations. A human being cannot be owned, old-born or otherwise, since both possess a soul. I will therefore first establish the fact that the old-born anarch has a soul, which the Rome buyer will admit, and then deduct from that premise that only the anarch can dispose of himself. So that's going to be the Rome, Roman argument. It's basically he should be free to do what he wants. And that, that's, it seems Rome's coming in it really as a moral arbiter. They don't really have an individual personal concern with the Anarch. They, they just want to use him as a test case for this argument that the Oldborn shouldn't no longer be the, essentially the slaves to be bought and sold of the Viterium. It seems that's, that's kind of a practical thing, though, that, that emerges because you have these dead rising from their grave. You need someone to dig them out. Businesses are going to do that. It costs a lot. They have to hire people. You know, so unless the state's going to do it, you're going to have private companies do it, and they need some source of income, right? So the way kind of the civil law has it is, yeah, they have a soul, and that soul is theirs, but their body is owned by the Vitarium and still has to be sold, sold off. And this, this discussion of free will and the soul leads to this interesting question of when does the soul reenter the body? Because what's happening with the Hobart phase is all the particles, so when you die, right, you decompose, your particles go everywhere, right? The, it's worm food and the worms dump part of you everywhere. And eventually your, your body's, you know, in the, you know, all over the earth. 
But the idea is, and this is why people don't always wake up at, this, at the right point, because the particles kind of have to come back and remake you, remaking even the brain. And at what point does the soul re-enter? Is it when they wake up? Is it when the heart first beats? Is it when there's first brain activity? There's a whole debate. And it's just the inverse of the debate about conception. And this was exactly the time when the church was talking about conception as the start of birth again, because we have the birth control pill established. And I, the birth control pill prevents pregnancy. And then, then this is one of the reasons the church came out against it. And they had an encyclical, which they argued against, uh, and saying Catholics can't have birth control, it's a sin. Of course, abortion is too. And the focus on uh, birth control and abortion is much more a product of the 60s, right? It would have been in the news when Dick was writing this, this novel and something he would have been thinking about. And he just kind of twists these arguments and inverts them for, for here. Um, now, as this chapter ends, Lindy, who's one of Sebastian's workers, who was protecting the Anarch, keeping them, trying to keep them undercover, informs them that the Anarch has been seized by the library. Right? So now the library has the Anarch. So all these other discussions are kind of moot. The rest of the novel is basically going to be about trying to get the Anarch back from, from the library. So it kind of devolved into a little bit of an action story, but it's a pretty good one. And it's got a nice epilogue, I'll say. But chapters 13 through like 20 are really about this. It's a fairly exciting and a fairly well done set piece about this effort to try to kidnap the Anarch back from the library. And, and who's going to do it? It's going to be Sebastian, of course, who's going to be the one who's going to attempt this heroic act because he's self-interested. His wife is there and he wants to, to save her. But how does his wife get under the hold of the library as well? This is what we learn in chapter 13. Okay, so chapter thir 13, we have Lata and, and Tinbane. Tinbane's the police officer who rescued Lata and they've since sort of become lovers. She even called her Sebastian saying, I'm going to leave you for um, Tinbane, so we get a nice parallel here that he saves her from the library. And later on, it's going to be Sebastian trying to save her from the library. And, and he does actually save her from the library. Um, so, but they're holding out in a hotel room. And they read this tabloid press. It's the Chicago Money Herald, Mon Monday Herald. It's the big tabloid press. And it has a lot of news about the library. But he knows the library is coming for him and they'll probably catch him. So he calls Appleford at the library and is trying to intimidate them and get, get them to back off. He argues... Tells him we got all these weapons and I'm armed to the teeth. And if he's, anyone you send is going to be killed, it's going to be a bloodbath. Um, and that, that's just what he's trying to say to him. But Appleford can't do much. He said, that's the ERAD's business to if they're going after you. Um, now, this is kind of a funny bit. Is We actually learned that there's a library's children department, children's department. You would think this is where the kids' books are. But no, it's not where the kids' books are. These are actually uh, oldborns who have lived out most of their life are now children. But they still have, I guess, have the mind of adults. I guess that's how it works. They, they don't become stupider. They're, they're still well-trained soldiers, but they're the size of children. And so they're great for infiltration, for um, extraction, for, you know, for, for combat. So these are, sent, these are like a military forces of the library. And they're called the children's, or the library's children's department. And they go to attack Tinbane, and they have a nice they have fight. It's a, ni it's a nicely described uh, Fight. But basically, the reason Tinbane gets defeated is he does, he's not used to shooting children. He's, he's you know, they were too short. He's used to shooting at, at adults, and this gives them the edge, and they end up killing Tinbane, and Lada is then forced to, to surrender. Okay, chapter 14 is an interesting section where we have a, we have Sebastian and the Uditi now are basically 
talking about their plan now. They have to get the, the Anarch back. And they get news that Lot has also been kidnapped. So that's the situation. How do you get the Anarch back? Can we get Lada back as well? Sebastian, of course, wants Lada back. The UDT want um, Anarch back. But they have the skill. They have the offspring. They have the technology to maybe uh, do this. And as we'll see, they already have a kind of a plan in the works for infiltrating the library. Now, while they're discussing this, in the backdrop are these TV reports about the Ray Roberts rally, this UDT rally. And we you have interviews on the street with different people. And we actually hear from Ray Roberts in this chapter through the television. So in the middle of their conversation, we're getting this discussion of this this mass of people. They're talking about millions of people coming to this rally, coming to Dodger Stadium to, to see Ray Roberts. And as we now know, it was really to be part, to be there for the Anarchs um, revival. But the plan now is really, how do you infiltrate the library? One plan is to make a simulacrum of Ann Fisher, and she'll be able to then go into the library, but there's no time to do that. Uh, they don't really have any agents in the library either that can, that can work from the inside. So the plan becomes Sebastian can smuggle himself in as Lance Arbuthnot. Now, Lance Arbuthnot is someone we were introduced to like way back in the second chapter, maybe even the first chapter, who is someone who made an appointment earlier to eradicate his PhD dissertation, which is kind of a weird bit of scholarship, kind of an odd, oddball one. Now, we now know that this was actually a UDT plan from long ago. They set it up to infiltrate the library if they needed to. So someone could just call posing as Lance Arbuthnot. They'll have the thesis. They'll bring it there, go through the ceremony of eradication, but then they'll be in the library, right? Um, so we get a bit of Ray Roberts' speech, though, and I, in this back and forth between the TV and the, and the apartment where they're talking about this. And I, I want us to give an idea of what Roberts is thinking about and, and what his kind of approach to theology is. Because he seems to be a real believer in this idea of, of this unity, this, that we have this common experience. So it can be reached through drugs, it's also reached through death, through the afterlife, and, and through this revival experience. But it's, it's kind of all pointing to this general collective experience. This is his speech. Part of his speech, anyways. I am you and you are I. Distinctions between us are illusionary. What does that mean? As the old Negro janitor asks in the ancient joke. It means the Negro cannot be inferior to the white man because he is a white man. When the white man in former times did violence to the Negro, he destroyed himself. Today, when a citizen of the free Negro municipality injures and molests a white, he too is injuring and molesting himself. I say to you, strike not the ear of the Roman soldier off. It will fall like a dead leaf to its own accord. I am reminded of the little old lady who'd recently been old-born and whose greatest fear had been that when they excavated her, they would find her improperly clothed. But neurotic fears can destroy a person and a nation. The neurotic fear by Nazi Germany of a two-front war, and then it kind of drifts off into ellipses. So what's going on here? Well, it's interesting that this is kind of a black nationalist religion in its roots, right? But it ends up with kind of a universal theology and a message. Right, and it's coming out of this this um, free Negro municipality. That's this is the main religion of that group. So, although it's an African American religion, it's becoming more and more open to whites. And there's peppered throughout here evidence that it is becoming more of a universal religion, breaking out of that. But it's you know, I, I think what Dick's doing here is he's responding to the emergence of of the Black Power movement and Black nationalism, and you know, in a in a kind of a typical white man way, I suppose, not fully understanding. You know the the origins and the the politics of the black nationalist movement. You know, kind of saying like, can't, can't we all just get along? Argument, which 
is for me a little bit unfortunate, but you know, I can forgive Dick a, a few, a few things. So they decide now. Uh, Sebastian finds out, okay, I'm the one who's going to go in, and he wants to do it right now. And they, they convince him that you, they, you, we can't get you in today. It's, it's too early. It's or it's too late. We'll do it tomorrow. And he's very upset about this, but he agrees to do it tomorrow. So chapter 15, it's it's a short one. Basically, he goes home and he gets in the mail the thesis. So this is that um, Lance Abernoth thesis that is supposed to be eradicated. And the plan is that he'll go in, he'll present the thesis, then he'll look it over and say, oh, there's a mistake. And so before it can be eradicated, I have to fix the mistake. So he's going to go into the reading room for 15 minutes or something, and this will be when he acts. He does his he does his act. So they discuss this plan and then they give him a survival kit. It's actually in his refrigerator. They snuck in his refrigerator. And the survival kit just has three weapons in it, which he's supposed to use. One is an LSD grenade, a grenade that'll shoot out LSD, make people hallucinate. Another is an LSD antidote, so he won't be affected by it. And then finally is a injection that will free him from the Hobart phase. So this is basically would make him not go forward or back. The Hobart phase is both time going forward and back. So by neutralizing himself from the Hobart phase, he would be kind of out of time. He'd be stationary in time. And this would then, when he takes this, he'd be able to then rush in, save the Anarch, maybe save Lada and, and get out. They do tell him though that in no uncertain terms that your mission is to save the Anarch. You know, Lada is an afterthought. And if you don't save the Anarch, you're, you're in big trouble. You know, Cause they're, they're a coercive force as well um so that's it uh there's that's three quarters of the novel so i'll, I'll finish it in the next episode mostly of what most of what happens in the remaining chapters of counterclock world is this this effort to rescue the anarch and it, it's it's pretty it's well done i think it's it's um, one of dick's better action set pieces i suppose and it's actually got some good fun in it as well so but everything's in place for the climax I think, um, you know, we got the big theological ideas. We'll review this all in the, the end of the next episode, but kind of everything set up for this, this nice science fiction action climax, the, the rescue from the library. It's still kind of funny to think, you know, that you have to arm yourself to sneak into the library, right? To free someone who's been kidnapped and, you know, that the army or the library has an army of ERADs who, you know, and children's soldiers who can, uh, from the children's department who can, kill police, well on police officers. It's, it's all wonderful stuff. It's a lot of fun. But it all reaches this, this exciting climax. And we'll talk about that in part four of my review. In the meantime, please send me your comments about Counterclock World, and I will uh, try to respond to them. Thanks as always for listening, and I will see you next time. You must you find the and content